0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Monday, July 23rd, 2018, starting at 11.56am in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 165th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer John Green about the concept of synastry in Western astrology. Uh, hi, John. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Chris. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me along.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this discussion. Uh, as I told you before, I've been wanting to do an episode on Sinistry for quite a while now. And I know a few listeners have been asking me for that for a few years, but it just hadn't come together because I hadn't found uh, a good person to talk about the subject, even though a lot of people... You know, um, use sinistry on some level in their practice. I, I didn't know a lot of people who specialized in it or who had written a book on the topic. And they're actually, even though it's, it's kind of a longstanding practice, it doesn't seem like there are that many books on the topic. Uh, but you actually just published a book specifically dedicated to sinistry a few years ago, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, I felt there was a lack of, a sort of gap in the market for a sinistry book. It's, always been one of my favorite sort of tools of astrology and when i was studying myself i kept looking for a book that felt right to me um and then when i was teaching students would say can you recommend me a sinistry book and i was sort of having to say um no <laughs> i can't right. the top of my head, and so I, I had the plan to write it and that sort of you know finally spurred me into to actually writing it to to fill that gap if you like
0: Right. Well, uh, I, I got the book, I've read it, and it's an amazing book. So, the title of the book is uh, Do You Love Me? The Astrology of Relationships, and this was published in 2015, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And what is your? will not we start with a little bit of background information for listeners of my show that might not be familiar with your work yet. Um, what's your background in astrology? How long have you been studying it? How did you get into it and so on and so forth?
1: Well, I guess- A long time is the the short answer. Um, I got into it at a very young age. My mum and dad were both not astrologers, but just interested in the idea of astrology. Um, And, you know, they had a few books and they used to read their horoscopes in the newspaper and stuff. So even from quite little, I got used to, you know, people saying, oh, I'm a Pisces, what does it say for me today or whatever, and this type of thing. So I think that sort of hooked me in. And then I, I used to read... Uh, voraciously as a child. And so uh, I suppose, probably early teens, I started getting into astrology books, borrowing as many as I could from the library, and then started doing a few courses after that, um, starting off with little sort of local evening courses. Um, and then later on, when I could afford it, <laughs> I finally took the course at the Center for Psychological Astrology, um, Liz Green School. Okay. And, and where is that? And that's in London? Yeah. Well, it used to be, Um, no longer does diploma courses. So that's, I mean, that's where I I sort of qualified in that. Um, And then after that, I, through accident, really ended up teaching for the CPA. Um, I originally decided I'd study astrology just for pure interest and to look at my chart and other people's charts, never expecting to become an astrologer, never expecting to teach astrology. Um, but I found getting more and more interested as I studied, so that when a vacancy came up at the c p a to teach a foundation course, I offered my services and
0: uh, thankfully it was taken on and so i 've been teaching ever since and What was that time frame when you first started studying there at the Center for psychological astrology
1: um there would have been sort of late nineties. Okay. Um,
0: when I was studying there, as I said
1: I'd studied courses before, but that was for the, the diploma level stuff.
0: Got it. So then you, and so you came to specialize in, in that specific approach to psychological astrology.
1: Yeah, it was the, it was the approach that always interested me. Um, I was very interested in psychology as well, um, growing up. So I used to read a lot of, you know, books on psychology too. So, you know, sort of bringing the two together felt right to me and so that that was the approach that worked for me yeah, interesting other this, approaches but
0: <laughs> that's the one that gelled sure well and especially in that period in the 1990s i mean that was coming off of or we still in this sort of like the renaissance of um some of that work with the center for psychological astrology and uh, i just remember so many there were so many great books that were coming out of Like Liz Green and Howard Susportas and other sort of figures associated with that group uh, in the 1980s and and forward? Absolutely.
1: I mean, they were publishing a lot through CPA Press. Um, They were also doing Apollon, which is the journal of psychological astrology, which only ran for a few issues, but was a very
0: high and interesting standard of of journal. Right. And, And all of the work being done sort of stood out. Um, especially during that period, I I would think during the the 1990s in terms of the quality and the depth of just the thought and sort of underlying sense of almost like academic rigor that was going into it, even though it was still very practically oriented uh, type astrology.
1: Absolutely. It's a very in-depth approach. Um, And I think in more recent years, I think psychological astrology is perhaps people see it in a slightly different way because a lot of astrology has got psychological um but it's often psychological in a more sort of pop psychology sense whereas the work that we did at the cpa and that i'm trying to carry on through my school um takes a very in-depth approach you know depth psychology it's not just a sort of um you know general type of i don't know like quiz you get on um buzzfeed or something like that that type of level of astrology you know um, of psychology it's it's one that that you know works deeply and works on a um, like you would work with a therapist or a counselor.
0: Right. It's a, taking some of the, the the sort of evolution of astrology from just basic character analysis and like early twentieth century Alan Leo type stuff to the the insights and the work that was done, especially by by Young. A lot of the episodes I've focused on earlier this year have focused on Carl Jung and some of the work that he did and then the gradual integration of some of his work in depth psychology into some parts of the astrological community. But the, the primary leader of your school, Liz Green, was like one of the primary architects for the integration of Jung into astrology, it seemed like, in the late 20th century. And so that would be part of the legacy that your school has has continued uh, through to today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's that, you know, continuing that, yes, through Jung, also bringing in Elements of Hillman, et cetera, um, and this type, of, and you know other psychologists working today. And so it's that brought in that sort of archetypal edge as well as the Jungian um, approach as well.
0: Sure. Brilliant. All right. And so as for yourself, so you, you teach through the uh, Center for Psychological Astrology still, and you also have a couple of other websites, right?
1: Yeah. I am um, the CPA, um, Liz. Quite a few years back, decided to stop doing the diploma level at the CPA, Um, and I was teaching online for her at the the time. And I felt there was a lack um, with the loss of that course of diploma level pure psychological astrology. And so I wanted to continue that work and do it in my own way, if you like. Um, I had a meeting with her. I (laughs) asked her if she wanted to carry on doing a diploma if I helped her and. she wasn't didn't want to continue that area. Um, I think she'd, you know, reached a point where she'd had enough of that. And so with her blessing, I started my own school, uh Mercury Internet School, of Psychological Astrology, or MISPA, as we call it for short. Um, and 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 started with that so that it's a diploma level course again, um, where we can go into to real depth um when looking at the charts.
0: Okay, that's brilliant. And that actually makes a lot of sense because it seems like her work, Liz Green's work over the past decade or so has shifted more towards uh, working on academic scholarship. And she went back to school and got her PhD and, and is working almost in sort of not quite classics, but something along those lines at this point. Whereas you're really continuing some of the the, the practical Oriented uh, psychological astrology work that sort of was initiated by her school a few decades ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. She she has moved into more that academic thing and her work. I mean, you talked about her book on um, Jung and and Jung and the Red Book um, in your podcast, and um, you know it's she's moved into that area, which is fantastic. But it means you know that there's there's a need for a school like ours, which allows students to learn that you know in-depth psychological approach and work with it with their clients
0: so that, you know that was the idea that I wanted to continue sure that makes a lot of sense all right well let's uh transition then into our our main topic here and um in trying to sort of put this together i usually try to talk about subjects like this that are like basic subjects that astrologers take for granted but sometimes just present them or talk about them as if the audience has no background and I was trying to think about what what the starting point was then for a, an episode or a discussion on sinistry and it seems to be that just starting with the concept of natal astrology and the notion that the basic premise of natal astrology is that the the birth chart reflects some things about the natives life and their character and their psyche and that sinistry seems to be essentially an extension of that because if the premise of natal astrology is that you're birth chart will represent something about your psyche, then naturally, um, that can lead to almost a natural conclusion where you might want to compare how one chart compares to another in order to describe something about how two people might get along. Is, is that the basic entry point for, for synastry? Or how, how would you set that up?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as human being, we're basically social animals. And therefore, you know, after we've sort of looked at our own chart and, and explored that region of, well, who am I really and, and what am I like? And what do the planets show about that? You know, I think the very next step is to go, well, how do I relate to others? Um, and it's all it is is a tool, it's a technique that allows us to compare two charts and see how we do, you know, relate to other people, whether it's, um, obviously a, you know, a love partner, which is often, um one of the foremost uses for it but also within families um, at work uh, within you know with our friends etc that, that those relationships are so important to us that to have a technique that allows us to look in that and not just see whether we might get along with someone or not get along but but what those reasons are and how we can actually do something about it you know what can we change to perhaps make it a better relationship.
0: Sure. So the the basic premise, the basic sort of conceptual or theoretical premise, is that by comparing the birth charts of two individuals, you can actually describe something about the dynamic in the relationship between those two people, regardless of what the what type of relationship it is. There is something about their dynamic that can be described by comparing their birth charts to each other.
1: Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, basically. Yeah, you are just looking at the impact of one chart on another.
0: Okay, brilliant. Um, so this practice as a practice sinistry, I've tra- I tried to trace it at one point to see how far back it goes. And even though there's not a ton of books on sinistry, especially recently or even traditionally, I have found references to the topic that date back to the first century and the second century in the works of Dorotheus of Sidon and Claudius Ptolemy. So it seems like the practice of sinistry actually dates back really far. But despite that, it's not something that's often explored very—I don't want to say very deeply—but just as we said earlier, there's not a ton of books on the subject. What are some of the classics that do exist?
1: Well, know, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I mean, you mentioned just to go back to to what you mentioned. Yeah, those uh, those early mentions, um, you know, by Ptolemy and, and Dorotheus. It's interesting because it does show that you know it was a technique that was used back then. Um, but they're very brief mentions, um, and often they're about you know a marriage if you like and they're talking about just the the sun and the moon or or venus and the, and the sun and this type of thing mm-hmm. which is interesting and i think it says something about the relationships at the time you know obviously at that time you know often once you were in one marriage that was it <laughs> that was your life marriage um you know people didn't get divorced you might have a mistress or whatever but unless you, you know you were perhaps I don't know someone like Henry VIII or whatever and indulging in several wives, you know, you, you was, they were sort of set. So it was really seeing if this was a good marriage or not. I think as time has gone on and obviously relationships, um, you know, we tend to have a lot more relationships now. We meet a lot more people. And obviously with regards to, to love relationships, we don't expect the first person that we, um, fall in love with to necessarily be our marriage partner. And even if we do marry them, we don't necessarily expect that it will last forever. So I think you know it's interesting that those time has changed, and I think that's why nowadays is perhaps you know a more important time for sinistry, because it does bring
0: in that in more. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So there's something about the you know, astrology being culturally relative and the the different sort of nature status of relationships in modern times that in some ways almost makes sinistry more relevant now than it's yeah ever been. I
1: think it makes it more important, and and people are more inquisitive people question and analyze their relationships whether they are into astrology or not you know it's why did this relationship go wrong or why do i always attract you know the same type of guy or the same type of girl or or whatever it might be so you know i think it is a, one of of our times if you like and, and then sure. to bring in sorry that makes um, sense. the i mean you said uh, what classics are there it's tricky to actually I haven't read all the books on sinistry, and I, I read a few, and then I stopped when I was writing mine because um, I didn't want to read what other people had written while I was, whilst I was writing mine.
0: Sure. I mean, it's basically two, right? I mean, there's two main sinistry books that I think everybody knows about. I mean one of them is is Davidson's yeah. or Davidson uh who I think he was like a president of the yeah, Lodge or something like that. And he uh, also asked,
1: developed the Davison composite chart, which is a different technique with relationships.
0: Okay. But he he deals with sinistry briefly in his book. I forget what the yeah. name is. Um
1: I think it is called Sinistry.
0: Okay. So there's it's like that uh, book and that stayed relatively in print. And then the other one that was relatively popular was the book by Sequoyan and Acker on like the astrology of relationships or something like that, right? yeah
1: which is more a sort of cookbook style which is what they they do well but it's it's that type of thing which we'll probably talk a bit more about later sure the other the other one i liked uh, was uh, robert black's book um which is part of his series he did a series of books um and and i think what, uh, the fourth one i think in the series is relationship astrology right and, and it's quite c- complex but it there was some good information and good stuff in it.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm looking at your bibliography right now, and it's uh, titled "Astrology: A Language of Life, Volume Four: Relationship Analysis" um, by Robert P. Yeah. Blaschke, published in 2004. Yeah, that's the one.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that was quite a nice one. Um, a lot of the others tended to perhaps dwell on the warm and fuzzy, if you like. So they tended to give a rather, you know. Isn't this wonderful view of relationships? And obviously, whilst that's maybe what we're looking for, it's not always what we end up with. Sure. So you know, I, I think any good synastry book has to go into darker places and has to look at you know the realities of relationships.
0: Sure, definitely. Um, so, and then just to, because I didn't remember the title correctly, really quick, the Sequoyan and Acker book was titled "The Astrology of Human Relationships," published in 1973, and yeah so you know not a not a ton of books around, so then that becomes then part of your motivation for writing this book um did you also i mean some of those other books, Blash, aside from Blaschke's, which is relatively recent, only ten years before you wrote this one, the other two were also written in sort of a different era um and Absolutely. did you feel like you needed to bring something to it in terms of where contemporary psychological astrology is at at this point relative to what those books were doing back in the like the nineteen sixties and seventies the when they were published
1: yeah absolutely you know I think it was a, a it was a different time as far as how people relate um for a start um and also you know it's that thing of, of as you mentioned you know psychological astrology sort of you know through the perhaps the late seventies and eighties and then towards the nineties you know was was really going into depth in these things, and there hadn't you know been a book written during that time and there wasn't one by liz or by howard or um you know any of those people involved um certainly in the uk in that sort of psychological astrology movement and so you know i felt that th- there was an area that needed exploring that went you know more into the psychology of relationships if you like
0: right and that makes sense but it's also surprising just because astrologers um often are almost imp- one of the points you make i think at one point in the book is that astrologers often are almost Implicitly using synastry, even when they first meet people, sometimes astrologers will ask, you know, for the person's birth data, or if you're meeting another astrologer, you might ask them for their sun, moon, and rising. And even though on some level that's partially to understand the the person, you know, in and of itself, there's another level where astrologers are probably immediately relating those placements back to their own via synastry, and therefore. Sort of doing some quick sinistry work in order to get a sense of how they think their interactions with that person might go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something I've seen a lot. You know, you go, I don't know, to the pub after (laughs) an astrology talk and you've got a whole group of students. And one of the first things, you know, they're checking out what what the the other person's chart or the other student's charts, how do they relate? And, you know, you always hear the echo, oh, my son's on your ascendant or, you know, I've got this on your that. And, And, you hear the, this thing, so I, I think it's something that innately astrologers are interested in and use. Which, again, as much seems surprising why there wasn't a focus on on books that really went into it.
0: Right, it's kind of this mysterious area where everybody's using it, but a lot of the the sort of principles aren't or or were not until until your book articulated very well. So, one of the points that you make early on in the book that I thought was really interesting is that the you say that the purpose of studying sinistry is is not um contrary to one one's expectations or one an expectation that people might have the The purpose is not to have perfect relationships but sh- instead just to help understand the dynamics involved in your relationships better right
1: yeah absolutely and I, and it's a an important point as you mentioned I, and I make the point sort of early on in the book purely because i I didn't want people to think you know, well, if I understand sinistry, all my relationship problems are solved. Right, and I, and I mean, I think I say in the book, you know, I get asked that, you know, because I talk about, you know, are your relationships perfect? And no, <laughs> they're not. Um, and it, you know, that's just the nature of relationships. Um, and I think there's an inherent thing that we think we're looking for the perfect relationship. You know, that's what we've been brought up and we sort of you know, we've been fed this diet of through fairy stories and films and books, etc., of the perfect romance. And then when we experience relationships for ourselves, and I'm talking particularly about love relationships, they're not as good. You know, they don't work in that way. It's not perfect. We don't all live happily ever after. And, you know, actually, it's what happens a lot in relationships. We end up repeating patterns, um, you know, whether it's patterns of our own making or patterns that we saw um, you know, amongst our parents and family members as we were growing up. And so that's why I wanted to say, you know, it's not a key to having perfect relationships. It's a a way of understanding yourself and others, which hopefully can then open sort of doorways of communication to actually talk about things that might be working or not working in your relationship. And also remove some of the blame, you know, it, we've tend to fall into the trap of relationships of blaming others for something. You know, we think we should all feel the same in a relationship, that how I feel in a relationship is the same as how my partner might feel in a relationship. But of course, we don't. You know, we're feeling different things. We're thinking different things. And so it's about opening up that dialogue and allowing people to talk about, sort of honestly about their own feelings to help build a better relationship and understand themselves better rather than just, you know, this is how to have the perfect relationship.
0: Sure. And maybe having a better access point for trying to work on some of the, the issues of the shortcomings since there will always be something that's not perfect in a relationship, but maybe it's just more of a matter of having, the, having better tools to go about addressing those things in a constructive fashion versus doing what people normally do, which is just kind of grapple with them as they can sort of blindly as they go through the relationship.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I think you know, for astrologers, it gives you another language to express it. Now that can be a problem in itself, right? Because, you know, it can end up being the yeah, well, your Saturn's on my Moon sort of argument. Um,
0: but that's so funny because any it, anybody that's ever been in a relationship with another astrologer, like that's a funny classic like astrologer squabble that you, that every astrologer will eventually have is is resorting to um, sinistry placements in some sort of dispute. <laughs> yeah absolutely um and, and so yes
1: it, it can build more problems on top if you like but but I think you know if we're open with each other you know if we stop for a moment and perhaps laugh after the your Saturn's on my moon comment and actually start to unpick it and and try and talk about it how we would do to a client so you know whereas we use as astrologers we use that shorthand your Saturn's on my moon but talk about the actual dynamic of how you know the one person's moon feels that sense of security that sense of you know emotional well-being and how that's affected by the other person's you know saturn being there and, and what the what's the underlying essence beneath that and then if you can open up the dialogue around that then you might start getting somewhere
0: sure that makes sense so um synastry is weird though because on the one hand you have Um, sort of normal relating between people, but sometimes it it seems to explain why two people can relate to the the same person or two different people can have entirely different perceptions of the same person. And that sometimes there are these these dynamics that come up in relationships and interactions when you meet somebody that seem to be, I don't want to say come out of nowhere, but sometimes you can just Get along very easily with some people, whereas naturally, sometimes you might run into um, like miscommunications out of nowhere that you're not really expecting with another person that aren't either necessarily the fault of one person or the other, but for some reason you just um, don't quite get along or don't quite click as well as you could. And sinistry seems to be a large part of sort of the thing underlying that mystery, it seems like, right?
1: Absolutely, and I think that's quite a useful way to learn synastry, if you like. um, If you've got access to people's charts, you know, if you think of two or three people that you get along really well with, and you think of two or three people that perhaps you have a problem with, whether it's a boss or a friend of a friend you don't really like, or whatever, and compare that, you know, those synastries to your chart, see what parts of your chart, you know, are set off by their um, chart, etc. What aspects are there between them? And you start to then build up a picture of of one, you know, of how you relate to other people and then why certain people, said through no fault of their own necessarily, by being them, they're just setting off a part of your chart that perhaps you're not very comfortable with, uh, a part of it that, you know, you want to sort of bury under the carpet and and leave alone. And they sort of remind you of that. And so, you know, we try and keep a distance. Whereas others, you know, perhaps we've got nice Mercury sinistry or Jupiter sinistry and you know, we feel comfortable with them. We enjoy communicating with them, you know, spending time with them socially, this type of thing. That's on a very simple level, but it does, you know, when you start looking at those, you get that you start to understand more why you have those feelings with some people and not with others.
0: Right. I mean, there's something sometimes that feels almost very liberating or reassuring about that um, because sometimes it can almost explain. You know, when something's not working and you don't know why, or sometimes you're attributing it to the other person or to 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 malice or something like that, but sometimes you you sort of glance at the sinistry and then just realize there's a sort of difficult cluster there of of combinations, and that part of it is not necessarily due to the fault of the individuals. I mean, sometimes obviously it is, but other times there's just something about the way the two of you Get along where you just rub each other the wrong way. And that's just a sort of basic dynamic between you that has to be navigated for better or worse. But it's, it's something that's sort of almost like pre existing based on the way your birth charts are interacting in some weird way.
1: Yeah. You know, and it allows you, I think, to to perhaps be a little bit more forgiving.
0: Um,
1: you know, if you take something like a Saturn connection to, to something um in your chart, you know, you may feel that they're authoritarian towards you, or they're always trying to put these boundaries up or whatever, you know, just thinking of normal sort of Saturn type words we might use. But once you realize that's there, then you realize that perhaps, you know, they're doing that because part of your chart, your sun, for example, may be setting off that Saturn them, which is an area where they feel vulnerable, you know, where, where they don't necessarily feel competent, although they might try and pretend to be from out of it. And so therefore, I think you're allowed, you can then become a little bit more forgiving and perhaps a little bit more gentle towards them, which by doing so, you'll then find that probably the way they come back to you is a little bit more gentle and forgiving. And you can start to build sometimes relationships that initially were antagonistic into something, you know, more workable. And that may not be with regards to a love relationship, but certainly if it's something like your boss who you're going to need to work with anyway, it can be quite useful to find those ways of, you know, bringing up a closer relationship rather than always being antagonistic to one another
0: right that makes sense so so developing a sense of empathy on some level for the other person but also realizing that the way that you perceive and experience this person may be different in some crucial ways um than how another person might experience them just based on how your your birth charts are interacting
1: absolutely and i mean you think about you know we all i think we all do that to extent extent we have a a view of ourselves of how we think we are. And we sort of assume that everybody sees us in the same way. And then sometimes we get, we might get delighted when somebody I don't know falls in love with us, but we might get very upset when someone really doesn't like us and we don't really know why. Right. Um, but, you know, everybody's like that. You know, we come across to, in different ways to different people and they pick up on different parts of ourselves because it echoes parts of themselves or it echoes a part of them that they're not very comfortable with. And so, you know, we all go around having these different um, relationships with people, but sometimes we don't take that time to, to really think about why that might be. And I think this is where synastry can be helpful when we use it like that.
0: Sure. So so one of the things um, that I was thinking in reading your book and coming across some of these sort of discussions about the, the philosophy and some of the conceptual structure underlying synastry and some of the implications for it is that um, at one point earlier in your book, you go into the birth chart itself and how the birth chart and some of the placements related to just relationships in the birth chart can indicate major themes um with different people in our life that are just indicated in the birth chart as just general themes. but it seems like sinistry is this other kind of kind of wild card factor that exists in people's lives because it can specify um dynamics that come up with specific people in our life. Whereas, you know, let's say having Saturn in the seventh house or having Jupiter in the seventh house might indicate some some general themes about relationships or what we're likely to encounter or how we react to relationships in our life. Um, the actual sinistry is is much more specific with how some certain dynamics will play out with individuals in our lives. And sometimes people may have certain placements that emphasize our own natal placements, or they may have certain placements that just are not connected to our placements at all. But generally speaking, other people's birth charts, this is a factor that's outside of our own natal chart. So it's outside of something that can be discussed just by looking at the birth chart in and of itself. And one of the things that this made me think is that perhaps this the the concept of synastry and the existence of sinistry may be part of the answer to the issue of twins or to time twins, where even though two people may share the same chart, like let's say two people were born roughly in the same hospital around the same time and therefore have the same rising sign and everything else, they're then gonna go off and have experiences with different individuals with their lot li- in their lives and different relationships. And the synastry in those relationships are going to react um, uniquely to different parts of the chart and therefore emphasize different parts of the chart. And um, perhaps the way that they grow into their chart and start to experience things as they mature and become older ends up being different or slightly different based on those relationships and the synastry that they have with individuals in their lives from that point forward. Um, have you, I don't know if you've gone in that direction or if that's going a little too far afield here, but it's just something I was thinking uh, about.
1: Well, no, it was an interesting, I, I mean, uh, I mean, certainly with, with time, twi- you know, people born around the same time. Um, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, your experiences of each relationship are going to be different. Um, and you, I mean, one of the things I dwell on in, in the book, you know, is looking at the relationships between, um, your parents and your relationships to your, to your parents and also to siblings as to, you know, because those early relationships are very, very important to us. And so, you know, two people could born with a very similar chart, but depending on what their parents are like, so although they've got the same internal aspects, you know, within the natal chart, they will have, you know, they have different parents and therefore the synastry aspects between the parent, you know, will either complement those and, and maybe give them a, you know, a sense of a good relationship with a parent growing up, or you know, with a, for another person could be a difficult one. And then, going through those early relationships, one helps shape who we are. And also, you know, we tend to to look for repetitions. You know, unconsciously, this is not something we're doing because we want to, but you know, we look for the familiar. We look for something that echoes those relationships we grew up with. And unfortunately, even if those early relationships were not good, we can often Unconsciously still be looking, you know, to, to experience those same type of relationships with a partner, um, or with, you know, other people as, as we grow older. So certainly there, I think there's that part that those different relationships shape us. And then also how we react to them and how we then grow from it is obviously going to give those differences with regards to, um, actual twins, um, with the same parents. Obviously that's, that's a slightly different thing but what i've often seen with with actual twins is that they live out different parts of the chart. Hmm. So it's almost like one twin agrees to, well I'll take this aspect and you take that aspect. And so you know one of them is living out one part one part of the chart while another lives out others. And so again with synastry if you're not living out that part of your chart it may not have such an effect on you as it might do to your you know actual twin. Interesting,
0: yeah, I've been meaning to do an episode on twins at some point, so that's that would actually be an interesting topic to return to uh, sometime and and that actually mm-hmm. raises a separate topic that you mentioned later in the book, which is that sometimes especially in a consulting setting when you're seeing clients and doing astrological counseling, it's important to establish that um you know the people will live out different parts of their chart, maybe at different points in their life or they'll be at different stages where maybe there's a a difficult indication in the chart that shows a tension or that they're prone to having certain types of difficult relationship themes um for for whatever reason but sometimes that can be something that the person has already overcome or gotten through or like learned and somehow progressed beyond in some ways or at least become better at dealing with versus Let's say if somebody's younger and they haven't dealt with that yet, or they haven't figured out how to overcome or to to resolve that part of their their chart. So that's a, a factor that you're taking into account anytime you're applying something like this. Uh, yes, it is. Um,
1: I mean, obviously, we all have you know good configurations that perhaps are easier for us. Configurations that, that we find difficult within the natal chart, and so we might have a, a theme around something I don't know, like a Saturn Square Venus or whatever. Um, that we live out within our relationships because we're trying to get to the, to sort of understand it, trying to become whole and trying to find ways that we can integrate these two planets that are perhaps, you know, often <laughs> rubbing each other up the wrong way, if you, if you like. And of course, by, by going through relationships and those can be parental ones or with teachers or with friends or whatever, as well as, um, with partners, you know, we come up against the same situation. Now, obviously the ideal thing is that we learn something from that. We grow, we change, we find a way of, of perhaps making that, you know, Venus Saturn Square work a little bit better for us. And therefore, that need, if you like, doesn't need to keep coming up in our future relationships because we've sort of moved on from that. We've found somewhere different. Now, there's plenty of other areas in the chart that probably, you know, then need working on, and we might find we start attracting partners that um Whose sinistry sets off that in our chart, Um, but yes, you know, relationships can change. It also transits, of course. You know, we may have had our Saturn return or something, and and started to understand a bit more about how Saturn works within us, and and therefore not need to sort of explore it so much within relationships. Because again, we've we've learned a bit, we've grown, we've we've grown up, if you like, and this type of thing. So it will change over a course of our life. It isn't always to do with age. Um, some people can learn these things very young, depending on what happens in their life. Um, other people, you know, could be on their second Saturn return, third second Saturn return, and, and that Saturn lesson still hasn't quite sunk in, and so they're still experiencing it within some of their difficult relationships and so on.
0: Sure, and that seems connected with one of the statements that you made at some one point in the book is that you said that the chart. You see the chart as kind of like a blueprint for self-realization, to some extent, and you use the Jungian term, or, or use that as a sort of synonym for the Jungian uh, concept of in, individuation, right?
1: Yeah, individuation, which is, I mean, it's the idea of becoming a whole, or uh, I suppose I think in simpler terms, it's sort of becoming the best person you can be. It's not about being some super hero or whatever. It, it's purely about integrating everything you know all the cards that you're dealt if you like in your chart integrating so they work well or as well as they can do for you and that you're that best person that you can be and i mean you know the individuation term is it's a nice way of describing it but you know people tend to think of it as this sort of achieving nirvana or finding this you know achieving godhead or whatever you might look at it but actually it's it's an ongoing process. It never really stops. Um, you know, I mean, Jung describes it as a circumambulation around the self. You keep sort of <laughs> going over the same process. You keep walking around yourself and seeing if you can improve this bit or improve that bit. So, you know, it's an ongoing process over life. But, you know, the chart, um, psychological, you know, gives us an idea of of what is there, what, what we hold within us. And so in, in that sense, it's a blueprint. And then, it you know, how we live our life and how we make the best of that chart, how we we bring the things together that we find difficult, as well as making the most of the the talents and the good parts that we have, that's sort of the way through it. You know, you can't change, It's it's a seed, it's an acorn, it has to grow into an oak tree, it can't, you know, become a maple tree. So there's only a certain path we can go along, but, you know, that's the idea that that's what the chart is. So, you know, we are constantly working on that, and the more... Conscious we are of, of how we're working psychologically through things like astrology or through working psychologically on its own. You know, just starting to shift that, starting to change that.
0: Right, and maybe you know, perhaps once you realize that you're an you're an oak tree, uh, trying to be the the best damn oak tree that you can be within the constraints of whatever that actually means.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the, I think it's about not setting unrealistic expectations. You know, you can only be who you are. And so I think it's about coming to terms with that as well. Sure. Um, You know, you cannot be a totally different person just because you want to be, you know, it has to be w- within what the, the talents, the skills, the person that you are, you know, within really.
0: Yeah. Well well that's part of the reason I liked that you framed it as self-realization just because or, or reframed it in that way, just because that seems much more process oriented and um yeah, more in some ways about the process and about something that's ongoing rather than something that is like a singular destination that you you will arrive at fully at some, you know, specific point in time.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> it's not that. It's absolutely an ongoing process. It never stops. Um and you know, it's just something that you you keep working on. I mean, the way Jung described it, it's something that happens anyway. I mean, we all grow older, we hopefully get wiser from the experiences we've had and this type of thing. So we're all growing in a way. It's just um, you know, in a psychological uh sense, it's about whether you sort of decide to work on it consciously rather than just let it happen as you get older. And the idea being that if you do approach that consciously that you know, maybe you can do it a bit quicker or make things a little bit easier for yourself. this type of thing
0: sure so along those lines, um one of the things that you one of the points that you make specifically about sinistry in the book as a sort of conceptual precursor is that we can predict dynamics that will arise um, as a result of synastry between in in people's relationships, between their charts or by comparing their charts, but you can't necessarily predict how those dynamics will be. Resolved, and this seems like a, it's a, it's a really crucial point in terms of astrological counseling, both in terms of what the astrologer is trying to accomplish and what they what they attempt to accomplish, especially with the client. But also, it seems important in terms of the client's expectations of what the astrologer is going to tell them. Um, so, I, I thought that might be worth expanding on a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um- and I think, you know, the, the thing is, if we go back for a sec, you know, how I was talking about that, you know, obviously we can, we don't know where somebody is in their own sense of development. Um, and so we can look at the dynamics involved in synastry and we can say, okay, this is an interesting dynamic. But then we're going back to, as, as we just mentioned, that idea, of, but how do you cope with this dynamic in your chart? How do you cope with this Venus-Saturn that we talked about? Um, And so that's one thing, one part of it, you know, so we don't know how it it's be resolved without talking to the client as to how they feel about that particular area of their chart and, and how it comes up within relationships. And then, of course, it's not just one person, it's another person as well and how the, they cope with it and what they do with it. And so from a counselling point of view, I mean, I always tell my students, you know, we're not there to be to show off. We're not there to be all wise or all knowing. And, and neither should we try to be, you know, we're there to explain the symbology to, to the client. You know, this is what the astrology symbology means. This is what it's about. This is how I've perhaps seen it work in other people before. How does that feel to you? And you're always checking back in with with that client as to, to whether it makes sense to them, whether they understand what you're talking about. And then our role is enabling them, you know, to look at it from themselves and to find answers within themselves. So, you know, we're not there to fix anybody. We're not there to to sort out their relationships. We're there to give them an insight into the, the dynamic that's going on using our knowledge of the symbology of astrology and allow them to then come up with the ideas from within themselves that well, how how might this work better? How you know how can I work with this better with my partner, with my boss, with
0: my mum or whatever. Sure, so instead of the client sort of coming into your office or or let's say to a couple coming into your office and you sitting down and looking at their charts and then making specific concrete predictions about like you know x, y, and z will happen in this area of the relationship, and this is your your fate or whatever in terms of certain things that will happen and whether your relationship will be successful or whether it will not last instead the the focus here is more. On trying to describe the dynamics that will come up in the relationship, whether those are are challenging or whether they're easier, and then just sort of presenting them with some options for how that can play out, and trying to get some some feedback to see what end of the spectrum they've experienced so far up to this point
1: yeah I mean i because I, I don't think there's any help in in predicting something about a relationship one, people are incredibly unpredictable when it comes to relationships. Um and And two, you know, does that really help anybody? You know, when you're looking at it from a psychological point of view, if you said to someone, this is really difficult, you might not want to bother, then supposing that they took your advice, then they'd walk away from that. But when we're talking about this self-realization process, if you like, then in a way they're missing out on an important lesson that that relationship is there showing them something about themselves and vice versa to the other person involved. And so, you know, actually we have to go through good times and bad times in our relationship and learn from them to move forward. And I think, you know, often when you're doing relationship work with people, it's less about telling them what their relationship is about, but normally about explaining to them why they're finding repetitions in their relationship. And it's usually because, you know, you walk away at a certain point or you don't work through this dynamic that they're in your chart. It keeps coming up to to meet you again. And so you finish with one person and you meet a new person and you think, well, this person's wonderful. They're exactly what I wanted. And then six months down the line, you're complaining to your friends, oh, they're exactly the same as the last one and the one before that. Why do I always have this bad luck with, you know, with my partner. And usually it's because there is something in your chart that, you know, uh, something to be learned, something to be understood, because it's a dynamic you're struggling with within yourself that you're putting out there onto somebody else. um, And they're taking that hook because it's usually, you know, around problems that they have themselves as well. But that's usually what we're working with, with relation, you know, is to help people understand what's going on in the relationship and find a way of working with it and thus understanding more about themselves rather than just going yeah this is great or this is bad because i don't think that's helpful to anybody
0: right and and one of the potential um pitfalls or or hazards or or problematic areas of sinistry that you talk about a little bit in the book is the concern that any counseling astrologer would have about uh sort of introducing a certain amount of of prejudice Um, to the client about their relationship and what the relationship will be like, or what sort of dynamics will arise in the relationship, which could end up causing them to have a certain view of the relationship or to color their view of the relationship early on in a way that's unnecessary or not helpful. And you actually even raised the point, the sort of question at one point about whether an astrologer should see. Or, or do a delineation like a sinistry delineation for a couple early on in a relationship versus waiting until it's a relationship, uh, relationship that's been around for a little while before accepting to do that kind of delineation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, there's a couple of points in there that, that one, you know, looking at it too early, I think can certainly either prejudice people within it or. You've got that thing of people actually not interested in listening, you know, particularly with a love relationship. If we've fallen in love with someone, it's usually quite some time before we can hear something, you know, that might be wrong with the relationship. Um, You know, we want to hear that it's going to be all good. We want to to hear that it's the right thing for us. And we're very good at sort of blocking off, you know, whether it's friends saying in our ear, I'm not sure he's right for you. Or an astrologer saying, Well, this looks problematic here. You know, we'll probably just ignore it and probably blame the friend or blame the astrologer um, <laughs> and move away from that. Right. So, uh, you know, I think it's, <laughs> we have to let people get to a position in a relationship where they're past that sort of, you know, honeymoon phase, if you like, where everything's rosy and start starting more to, you know, perhaps a relationship is becoming more serious um or or they reach some difficulties and then want to work with it because they believe the relationship is worth working at and i think that's where it can be helpful um you know and and i think it's important ethically as astrologers that we're we're careful with that you know that we we don't always realize the power that we have um coming in you know as an outsider looking at a strange symbols on a piece of paper and, and telling them something about their life that feels accurate. Um, and it's very easy, you know, for even just a, a flippant comment or a a small comment that wasn't really meant as anything that deep or serious to take root in people's mind and them to dwell on it and build on it. So I think, you know, we always have to be really careful, which is why, um, you know, certainly the school I run or whatever, you know, I recommend that people learn counselling skills training and I know it's part of ISAR and that as well you know to to understand the dynamic when you're when you're working with people and, and talking to them so that you um you know you know the right way to talk to them to listen to them to understand um how they might take the various things you say and work with that sensitively
0: right i've actually I've talked to there's been a few astral, younger astrologers i've talked to recently who um have r- sort of gotten launched into their careers as, as astrologers and started seeing clients and started reading people's birth charts and sometimes have become popular on like platforms like Twitter or YouTube, but then have been surprised and, and realized in some instances that even though they could read charts, that they were kind of out of their depth or, or that they had some work to do because there were a lot of things coming up in these sessions that were obviously really intense or really um, sensitive psychological and sort of counseling dynamics and that they realized that they needed to learn more about counseling in order to be equipped to deal with those issues and that's that's a lot of what you sort of teach and what you try to um train people on right
1: well yes it's certainly a part of it you know and I, and I think it's vital that astrologers do learn this you know these very techniques because you know, we all love astrology, or all, all, all your listeners listening to this yourself. But you know, it's very easy to get carried away with that love of it and, and want to share it with people and tell them stuff. But we have to be aware of the effect that has on people and how they respond to things and whether they're um, ready for that, whether they, how they might take it. And so, you know, we need to be very strong in these techniques to be able to deal with it properly. Um, and so I think it's a vital part of any astrologist training to be able to, you know, to work with people. And, you know, it's not something that you can just sort of read a quick book on and go, well, that's fine. I know what I'm doing now. You know, I think it's something that needs practice. It needs something that, um, you know, needs courses, et cetera, where, where you practice these techniques and work through it and and realize how it feels, you know, when you are talking through these very intimate parts of your life with, with other people so yeah it's something i do feel strongly about that it's you know an important factor
0: sure and and this this idea of um you know prejudicing the the client about their relationship it's kind of ra- has raised an issue or something i've struggled with at different points or not struggled with but wrestled with is just this question of you know is it problematic to say anything at all especially let's say if we just limit it to you know somebody's come in and they're asking for uh, you as the astrologer to look at and tell them some things about a relationship based on their synastry with their partner and you know one of the issues is is can the astrologer fully control what ends up being helpful or harmful to the person so so you mentioned sometimes the astrologer can just you know make some offhand remark that the client ends up taking much more seriously or maybe they they take the comment in a way that, that they interpret it differently than how it was intended by the astrologer, and sometimes it's kind of weird how you know there there are certain comments or certain things that might stick with the person that the astrologer might not expect or or not anticipate um and I wonder sometimes you know how much the astrologer can control those things versus not being able to, especially when talking about something as sensitive as relationships
1: yeah i I mean I- Certainly it goes back. First point would be to go back to that idea, you know, of having training, mm-hmm. uh, in counseling, because I, I think immediately that, you know, that gives you an insight into it. And I think, you know, people that have done that are far more careful and cautious about how they talk to their clients. Mm. The, the other thing I will often look at because, you know, if, if I'm doing sinistry work, I, I, I want the permission of everybody involved. Okay. Um, whether that's a, a relationship, um, or whether it's a you know mum and daughter or whatever, um, unless obviously with parental perhaps um, you know someone's passed on or whatever, it's not available. But certainly within a love relationship, you know, I want to work with both people really.
0: So that that's a really important point because that's a like an ethical consideration that, that some astrologers sometimes this is like debated, but you you are strictly on or very strongly on the side of you. You you have to get all consent from every party whose chart is analyzed in any astrological consulting setting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, even that probably isn't enough, Chris. Because if you think about it, it, you might be into astrology, but if your partner wasn't into astrology and you said, "I'm going to my astrologer," can I give them your birth detail? They might go, "Yes, yeah, fine." Right. Whereas. I think really they've got to have an understanding of, of what information is contained within our birth data you know which w- we know <laughs> um but you know someone who's not into astrology doesn't really have a clue what giving date place and time you know tells people about who they are what they are etc um so you know I think that's another consideration um but as I said I would certainly go for mission the other way I can look at it sometimes is if someone is having problems is not to look at their partner's chart at all, but to look at theirs and talk about their way of relating. So, you know, you're looking at all the same sort of areas that I talk about in the chart, but you're not looking at the interrelations between their chart and the partner, but just looking at these potential areas, if you like, which are important to their relationships. And therefore, you can do a very good reading for someone to talking about, how they approach relationships, what they're looking for in a relationship, what their expectations are, that can be incredibly helpful without actually involving the other person. And then also not getting into the, them going back and saying, Well, my astrologer said that you're a. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That you have uh, issues yeah. with your parents that are unresolved. And that's why. Exactly. Or,
1: yeah. Or you treat me like crap, you know, right. whatever
0: it might be. Uh- so that's a really important point because that, that's actually basically one of the first chapters of the book is in your book on sinistry, you do not dive right into sinistry. What you actually start with and what you emphasize is you have to start with the birth chart of the two individuals involved mm. and, and analyzing what I meant by that is analyzing them for their sort of relationship predispositions in and of itself by looking at specific things in each individual chart to see how that chart deals with relationships or how they're Naturally predisposed to approach relationships.
1: Absolutely, Uh, I think this is vital. I I think we're not really doing synastry unless we take that step. Um, And this was perhaps one of my things with a lot of synastry books was that it immediately goes into the you know what happens if your sun is on their Venus, your Mars is on their Jupiter, whatever, and doesn't talk about well, what is that doing in your chart, you know, because. My Jupiter is not the same as your Jupiter. My Mars is not the same as your... You know, we've all got different approaches to it. And so by taking an understanding of the natal chart first and understanding what are the, what is it about, you know, what do they look for in relationships? What do they expect from them? How do they experience love? Is it something that's comfortable for them or something that's difficult for them? Um, you know, how do they express themselves, et cetera? And you look at the whole chart of each individual and then you start bringing them together once you've got an understanding of what each component of the two people's charts are about. And so, yeah, that's why, you know, as I said, you can absolutely do a very good reading on, or consultation rather, about how they relate with one person without even bringing their partner in. And the same with, you know, often parents, they want to know about their children. And again, that's, in you know, an area of ethics Um of when can children give permission? Is it okay to do that? Whereas again, you can look at a, you know, a parent's chart from the, the point of view of being a parent and what they experienced as a child and how they are perhaps relating that to their child again, without actually bringing in anything about the child and the synastry to them. And so, you know, in a way, it allows the client to get useful information and something that often opens their eyes quite a bit without, um, Sort of compromising the any ethics on regards to permission from other people involved
0: sure that's such a fascinating sort of area, yeah, I mean that could be a whole topic episode in of itself because then you get into other things like um, celebrity charts and like public figures and and the appropriateness of that where there's some similar debates about you know using charts of data that's publicly available versus not and, and other things like that, but just to circle back around to. Sure. <laughs> you're, you're, you're...
1: Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge area,
0: right? right. Um, no, but I'm actually really fascinated by it, so I almost ha- I have to stop myself from like going too far into that because I'd be interested in talking to you more, but maybe another time. Um, sure. But one of your points, basically, that just to sort of rephrase it or reiterate it, is that if sinistry if the the point of synastry is that it activates natal placements in each chart each person's chart is capable of of activating placements in another person's chart, then the question is what did those original natal placements indicate in the first place? And this becomes one of your major criticisms in the book of other sort of cookbook style approaches to sinistry, which is mainly what most other sinistry books do, in just delineating that when one person's Venus is conjunct another person's Jupiter, it means this um they're not interpreting those within the context of how they're actually situated in each person's birth chart but instead they're doing it in isolation which is going to be limited in terms of its usefulness because it's not taking into account the actual um condition of the planet and its actual specific um placement in each person's birth chart
1: yeah uh, i mean and i probably make a bit of a big deal of it in the book I don't necessarily have anything against sort of cookbook astrology books, um, although it might come across that way in, in, in my book. The fact is all students love them, you know, and we do it with books on, you know, planets in signs, planets in aspect, you know, all of that type of thing, because it helps us learn. And I get that. Um, and so, yes, students love them, but the the problem, and I think it's particularly emphasized in Sinistry is that it just doesn't give us an accurate picture. And so therefore I wanted it, you know, to make it clear in my book that if you want to learn it, the actual technique of sinistry is incredibly simple. You know, you, you can teach it in an hour or so quite easily, but it's the complexity of interpreting it that takes years of practice, if you like. And so, you know, what I wanted was the students to, to start from that principle of realizing you've got to go straight for complexity. That you can't do the shortcut of just going, well, this means this because that's on that because it doesn't take anything into it. And so, you know, for example, I, I sort of talk about, um, let's say you have, let's go back to Venus square Saturn. So someone's Venus is square to Saturn in their chart. And so therefore, you know, that idea of, of, of being valued, of being loved, et cetera, you know, brings along the sort of baggage of Saturn. And so it's often that that sort of feeling of lack as they were growing up, that they didn't feel perhaps a parent respected them enough or or valued them enough or loved them or whatever. And we take that forward into our relationships that says, I am not worthy of being loved. This is quite a common feeling for people. You know, I'm not worthy of this love. I'm not worthy of, um, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this or whatever. And so you take something like in a cookbook where it says, well, this person's Jupiter is on your Venus. You know, that's a wonderful combination. Your desire links with their, um, you know, planet of of joy and abundance and whatever. And so therefore, that's a fantastic aspect. But of course, that's shining a light on a feeling of inadequacy. If you have Venus square Saturn, you know, you're feeling I'm not worthy of love. And so there's this other person's planet emphasizing that, which makes you feel overwhelmed by it. You know, big Jupiter can often be overwhelming. But you've got that sense of vulnerability. So it, well, whereas, you know, the Jupiter person may feel fine because they've got it trying to the Sun. You know, the person whose Venus it is square to Saturn is overwhelmed and and probably a bit unsure. And you know, what is this person doing? Why do they care about me? And you know, they've got feelings of uneasiness, which the other person
0: hasn't. Right. So the the cookbook delineation is going to delineate that just positively because it's Venus Jupiter combination, but it's not taking into account the fact that in the Venus person's chart they have it square Saturn and so there are some other things that come along with the activation of that planet that, that need to be taken into account to get a full picture. And if you only take into account just the the initial sinistry placement, then you're missing part of the picture.
1: Absolutely. You know, and and I mean obviously you can you know if you're a smart astrology, you also look at Jupiter square to Saturn if it's within orb. Um, but you know, Jupiter square Saturn is not going. Is again, is not the same thing as Jupiter conjunct Venus square Saturn. You know, because again, it's missing that connection between Venus and Saturn and how they you know are relating to one another.
0: Sure. So that brings up then, I guess, a really important point, which is that even though in the cookbooks, synastry is often presented as as primarily just you know. Person A's planet being trined to person B's planet equals whatever delineation. In fact, what you're actually looking at in Sinistry is complex sort of clusters of planets that are intertwined in person A's birth chart and how those clusters interact with other complex combinations of planets in another person's birth chart. So it's more like planetary sort of pictures or signatures and how those signatures match up with other signatures in another person's chart
1: that's correct it's you know and you have to go into that full complexity of it and i think that's you know one of the thing you know people like the idea of compatibility and they you know i mean we've all seen the <laughs> online quizzes or you know articles and oh i'm a i'm a gemini and he's a virgo is that compatible or not and you know it's <laughs> irrelevant really you know to actually understand the depth of relationships you have to look into all of these and it's not simple you know it's not something you can just do in 10 minutes and so yes you can pull out little threads and you know quick snippets that you might be able to give someone but if you actually want to do it properly and you actually want to really understand the nature of relationships you have to go into this depth
0: right so it's the same issue that just computerised reports of of natal uh, positions in a person's birth chart run into if you generate like a report on astro.com or wherever, which is just that they can't, they, they can give you individual delineations of what one placement should mean theoretically, sort of abstractly in isolation, but they can't synthesize them together. And that's really the unique work that each astrologer has to do, both when interpreting a birth chart, but also when doing something like sinistry, which then becomes much more complex because you're then, you're then trying to. Synthesize not just each natal chart in and of itself, but also how those charts come together as a sort of complex, uh, cluster of combinations.
1: Yes. And, and we should be pleased about that actually, because it's what protects our job from being taken over by robots. Right.
0: We are, we are safe from the <laughs> robot uprising of.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly what we should be studying as, as students of astrology, you know, is all that integration and. Synthesis because, yeah, it's job protection. Very good. We've
0: <laughs> got at least a few more decades until <laughs> exactly yeah. um, singularity and uh, they become sentient, and then we'll see what happens. But for now, uh, our jobs are for safe. Now we're safe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, circling back uh, before we jump into the sort of final phases of this, what are some of the natal placements that you look at first when you're first just analyzing each individual's birth chart in order to understand how they're going to do in relationships or what kind of predispositions we might be looking at for that person.
1: Yeah, I mean obviously the the short answer is the whole chart sure. Um but I think you know there there are certain specifics you can look at. Um you know when we're looking at each individual chart the first thing I I think the most import, important thing to start with is things like, you know, um, the relationship with parents. So parental signifiers, sun, moon, um, relationships between those, 10th and 4th house cusps, the rulers of those, et cetera. Looking at those, you know, what were the relationships we had growing up and what were they like? And I mean, obviously not everybody has two parents, et cetera, and this type of thing. But again, it's important, even if there's a missing parent, you know, to to look at those, because what are, were our expectations of the missing parent? You know, just because we didn't have a mom or, or a dad, we had ideas about them. We had, you know, perhaps wishes, dreams, hopes of what they would be, etc. And they all play into our relationships as well. So certainly, look at parental stuff. Um, what we lack, so things like, you know, look at the elemental balance modality. Um, balance, you know, are there areas in element or modality that that are lacking within the chart? Often we're attracted to to what we lack in this type of thing.
0: So, so if a person has a bunch of like fire placements, but they don't have any water placements, then they might attract a partner that has a heavy emphasis on water placements because they lack that in their birth chart.
1: Yeah, and and we're looking to sort of become whole, if you know, or we'll fill in the gaps in our chart. And often we do that. Same, you know, maybe we have a lack of earth. And then often we look for a partner who can do that because it saves us the bother. Um, so, you know, the partner who can pay the bills on time, make sure that, you know, the rent's paid, that there's a roof over the head and take care of all those good earthy things so that you can go off and be fiery or watery or whatever you want to be. And the idea is obviously that we learn from that person and gradually start to integrate that lack within us and have an understanding of it. Um, of course, that doesn't always happen. Often we We just let them carry on paying the bills and then complain how boring they are because that's all they do, and it can cause problems in relationships. But you know these are all things that we that often play into relationships. You know that attracting what we lack in the chart.
0: Right, that's really funny because it's on the one hand the person you know is perhaps attracting or has a tendency to draw in those those type of people to make up for whatever might be a. A deficiency or, or at least something that's not super present in the birth chart, but then it's not always necessarily readily appreciated because it's so radically different in its approach than what the person is used to doing.
1: Yeah. I, I remember reading an article once about, um, a uh, marriage guidance sort of counseling article, and it was saying that often the, the, what brought, brought people into marriage guidance was usually the same thing that they were first attracted to the person for so they like them because they were a free spirit but now they're in marriage guys because that person is too much of a free spirit and they've gone and had an affair or whatever this type of thing so you know often those things keep replaying again and, and you know what attracts us to that person can then become either you know perhaps boring in that sense or it can become you know something that that troubles us because it, you know we are not like that and actually you know it is about opening up to that and and learning from them rather than just letting them get on doing that Sure. So certainly look at those things. Uh, obviously, seventh house stuff. So the descendant sign, planets in the seventh, the ruler of the seventh. Uh, these are all quite important because you know they're describing that that arena of relationships. Um, obviously, you can bring in other houses as well, depending on the type of synastry you're doing. You know, whether it's work or um, family or whatever. You know, we'll bring in slightly different ones. Venus and Mars, obviously, we'd look at, you know, how what do we value? What do we desire? How do we go about getting it? And then the moon, we already mentioned with regards to sort of, you know, our relationship to mother, but also that idea of, of what makes us feel looked after, what makes us feel safe, you know, and our, you know, sort of primal emotional response to things that's wrapped up within the moon. Um, so, you know, understanding of all of these will help build up that picture. Um, of what that person is looking for in a relationship, et cetera.
0: Sure. And, and one of the things that you touch on, especially when talking about the seventh house and things connected with it is the idea of, um, projection as a psychological concept. And the, the, it sort of raised this question for me where sometimes it seemed like there was this question that was often unanswered about when, I don't know, when is a person like projecting things? or or sort of creating situations in that way themselves by projecting something outward versus when are things outside of their control or is that not the right way to ask that question or to look at it?
1: No, no, no. it's a good question, Chris. Um, I mean, I think projection is when we sort of put out our own unrecognized personal qualities onto other people, if you like. Mm. Um, And and the important thing is, you know, it's not conscious. Um, We don't intend to do it. But, you know, for example, we may project, say, Mars in a Mars-Saturn opposition, for example, because that aggressive energy doesn't fit the self-image we have of ourselves. Or maybe our parents always told us not to do Mars stuff, not to get angry, not to show aggression. Or maybe, you know, we feel more comfortable with that idea of Saturn restraint, or maybe we've got Libra rising and we don't like that, you know, all of these types of things. So for some reason, we're not comfortable. So we put it out there on people who, to us, seem like they're aggressive and they're always giving us a hard time or they're always playing up or whatever. And it isn't a pathology, you know, it's a defense mechanism. Um, you know, it, it, so it's not that we we do it to be nasty. It's just we're not sure what to do with that energy. So it, it's easier to put it out. Well, it's somebody else's problem. It's out there. Um, so... This is the way in which these, you know, tricky aspects in our chart or things we don't feel comfortable with make themselves known to the ego. And it gives us a chance to start establishing a relationship with them and understand them once we become conscious. Now, how do we know when we're projecting rather than, (laughs) you know, it being actually something we, you know, we should be upset about? There's not really any guaranteed sort of signs. But I think projection is likely to be a part of the mix when we fall in love when we have, and when we have strong feelings about something, whether it's very positive or negative. Often about people we know very little about or if we have a so- strong sort of somatic reaction, you know, we get butterflies in our stomach or we feel sick or we feel lightheaded or whatever. And when we notice that that emotional reaction seems to be much greater than the circumstances warrant. You know, it's, it's when it's highly charged with emotions, you know, when our reactions are out of proportion to the situation, that's normally when it's something we're projecting, you know, rather than it being something the other person is doing or, you know, or something that, that perhaps is just a problem. Um, you know, perhaps we snap somebody's head off because they've asked us something that touches a raw nerve or we get obsessed about a particular person, whether it's positive or negative. Can't get them out of our heads or whatever wakes us up in the middle of the night, et cetera, and we can project on you know things as well, we can project on on racial groups or political groups or whatever you know all of this type of thing, but it's when it seems sort of almost unwarranted or out of proportion, there's a huge emotional charge normally gives us the clue that it's something more about us than just you know and I mean obviously we can get angry. Um, and we might get angry about, you know, a certain thing like, I don't know whether it's racism or something like that, and that would be a natural anger. But when it becomes totally out of proportion or, or we're accusing other people of, of doing that, when perhaps they haven't really done that much to warrant it, that's, you know, probably when we should start to look, to look inward a little bit more and go, well, well, why am I having that such a reaction there?
0: You know, what really has that person done? Sure, that makes sense. And um, one of the things that you emphasize when you're talking about the descendant sign in the 7th house or 7th house placements is just the idea of, of sometimes those being um, whereas the ascendant is more things that are, are readily clear about the person's personality or their character that the 7th is sometimes things that they don't acknowledge within themselves and, and therefore tend to attract uh, through relationships with other people who display those qualities. Is that, I mean, is that a correct way of summarizing that or how would you put that?
1: Yeah, no, no, I think that, no, I think that's correct. You know, the the seventh house is how we view the other, if you like. And so, you know, it's very easy that anything in there, um, you know, we start to see as, as belonging to others and not really part of us, which you said that, you know, the first house feels more strongly us. And I mean, you know, people often say, well, what if it's your son in the seventh or whatever? You know, even the sun can be projected onto something, you know, onto somebody that we, we see them as embodying that. And then often we, you know, we've never feel that we perhaps quite achieved what we wanted to do because we're looking at other people and going, oh, they're so good at doing that. When really we need to start owning it and realizing that it's a part of us, um, you know, and it's not just a quality that belongs to other people.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen that as a common theme of like a seventh house sun. And I think you said something about this in your book of, of developing one's identity within the context of other people or one's identity sometimes being very closely attached to the, the partner in some way. Um, yeah, or to the idea of relationships.
1: You know, I, I think when you have a lot of planets in there, the idea of relationships becomes so important to you because <laughs> that's the way you discover about yourself. You know, to discover about the sun or if you've got Mars there to discover your Mars, you have to sort of experience it through others. So that that idea of relationships becomes,
0: you know, strong and important to you. Sure. That makes sense. All right. Um, so that leads us finally through this sort of long and circuitous route. And I probably should have put this at the beginning, but, but, but to the basic <laughs> components of sinistry and, and what, <laughs>
1: of what sinistry is. Right. We were
0: sort of talking about <laughs> it and, and around the philosophy and the and conceptual motivation, all these other things. But to get into the actual technique, um, there, there's really two primary things from a technical standpoint that you're, you're looking at, it seems, right? When you're actually doing yep. sinistry and comparing two charts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're looking at the, the, you know, house overlay, you know, where does one person's planet fall? What house of the other person? It always gets really difficult when you're describing sinistry because you can, this person, that person, right. it, it always gets a bit com- confused, but, um, so where does one person's planets fall in the houses of the other person? So that's one
0: part of it. You know, what houses are they, um, sort of stimulating, if you like? So like if, if one person's, let's say sun falls in the sixth house of another person's chart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then it's, it's putting an emphasis into that area of life, if you like. And I mean, it could be something very simple in that, you know, you, you met them at work. Or or through your daily routines or whatever. Or, you know, but it, you know, their sun is bringing an energy to to that area of life and often sort of opening that up to you where perhaps if you don't have planets here yourself, you know, it it seems a little bit closed, that type of thing.
0: Okay. So, so planets activate the, the topics basically associated with the house that they fall in in the other person's chart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's correct.
0: Okay. And then what was the second thing?
1: So then, the second part is is cross aspects, if you like. So you know what aspects do one person's planets make to the others. So, for example, you know, is their sun conjunct your sun, or square your sun, or sextile your sun, and so on. Same, you know, you know does Venus square your, the other person's sun? Does Saturn square the other person's Mars, or op- oppose? So you know, you're looking at those cross aspects, um, and and you get familiar with it, you know, when you start looking at it yourself. But often, um, I mean, as astrologers, we tend to sort of put one chart around the other in a bi to show how it is. But that's not always easy, I think, when you're starting out to see the aspects. So you can also do a grid. Most software and, and things like astro.com will let you draw a synastry grid, which maps out all the aspects between one person's chart and the other, and this type of thing. So, you know, it gives you that that view of of how to look at it and what you're looking at, if you like,
0: sure. And that uh, biwheel or the practice of doing a biwheel is evidently very old because there's been some astrologers' um, consultation boards, which are like like little chess sets, except they have like a zodiac circle in the middle of them. And astrologers would evidently pull these out for consultations and then put stones down on the board to create the person's birth chart for a consultation. Um, There's been like one or two of them that were found that had two concentric zodiac circles, uh one around the other that seemed like they were set up either in order to study transits or potentially one of the academics who wrote an article on one of these boards, James Evans, speculated that one of them was for sinistry. So, it's interesting that that practice of actually using biwheels is probably pretty old going back to the first few centuries CE.
1: Yeah, I think that's really rather nice, actually. I mean, there's such a convenient way, as you say, whether you're doing it for transit or synastry, because, you, you know, you're give, giving it that visual medium, you know, you're being able to picture it. Um And I know some, you know, students often struggle at the beginning spotting all the aspects or whatever, you know, but start with the big ones. So start with, you know, this person's planet is conjunct, that one's of the other. So start with that or where they're opposite, you know, or, or square and, and then sort of, gradually bring in the other ones um so you know i think it, it's a useful way of doing it the the grids are great as well because they show you all the aspects but sometimes that can get a little bit bogged down But i think i think it's preferable to use a buy wheel, get used to using a buy wheel, because then you can start to see you know the aspect pattern and you've got that visual layout of where it is and what houses they're falling etc all at the same time
0: yeah, definitely. And and you can see more of the the combinations of like multiple planets or one planet moving into another person's like T square or or grand trine or what have you, so that you're seeing the the chart patterns interacting rather than just individual planets aspecting each other.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so, you know, that's an important part of it.
0: Um and, and just, you know, gradually familiarize yourself with it. Sure. So, and and part of the access point for this seems to be in using bi wheels is that Sinistry sort of makes it, or, or you could almost conceptualize it this way. And I'm not sure if this was the original access point or what, but it's almost like each person, each person in each person's chart represents a sort of transit to your own chart. And you could almost just look at it like a transit, except it's a permanent transit where this person somehow represents. You know, whatever the energy of that day was for you relative to your chart, except it's, it's stuck there and it's, it's like an unmoving transit. And it's funny because as I'm getting older, you know, I, I start to interact more with like younger people where I remember they're, they're like adults now, but I remember being alive and looking at my transits on that day, you know, 18 years ago or 20 years ago or what have you. And, and as you get older as an astrologer, you get a much more visceral realization that. Every person you interact with is sort of like a, a transit that you had at some point in your life, especially uh, younger people that were born after you were. But it seems like that's almost true just in general. Is it almost a general principle of sinistry?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's th- that feeling of it, and I mean, I, I think it's a really important one. Is, is if you're looking at parents and children, in that obviously the children were, you know, as you say, because they're young, absolutely a literal transit, right? That happened to the parent when they were being born right so you know and i think that's a really interesting one to think about because um you know maybe your saturn return or it may have been i know mean, with my son it was my pluto square um that i was having when he was born but you know that transit moves on over time but in the of course the synastry with that person it's there it continues and so You know, whereas (laughs) you sort of get rid of the transit or whatever, you know, with your children, that permanent transit is there within your relationship to them.
0: That's so fascinating. I mean, because then there's there's something about that transit then that you'll never escape in some way. To the extent that that relationship is in your life permanently, but then on the other hand, you can also you know because our relationships with individuals grow and change over the course of our life. It's almost like you're having an ongoing dialogue uh, with that transit that might have different stages and different like eras of of growth at different points in your life.
1: Uh, Yeah. And, and it allows you to, to work with, you know, if it is a big transit, like a Saturn return or something, you know, it allows you to sort of constantly re-experience it should one wish Um, you know, having that transit over and over again. And so perhaps getting more depth and and more knowledge out of it um, than we would do, you know, than when it, when it's just a transit and it moves on. And so there's benefits to it, of course. You know, let's not <laughs> dismiss that that it can be problematical. You know, in in that your child is is always stimulating that energy. And if it was a particular transit you found very difficult, then you better learn to get used to it. Or you, you know that constant difficulty, you know, may be felt there with that child.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's sort of broadly or indirectly related to another principle that you mentioned at one point in the book, which is that sometimes people attract individuals who play out or who represent specific transits so that you'll be going through, let's say, a Saturn transit, and then somebody will show up in your life that has Saturn very prominent in their chart, or you'll be going through a Mars transit and somebody who has very Mars very prominent in their chart or maybe where Mars is very prominent in your synastry will then Come into your life at that time, so that people sometimes are, sometimes people take on the agency of transits or, or play out and represent transits in a very literal way.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I've seen that happen over and over again. Actually, I mean, there's an example in the book, um, but I, I think one of the most common um, for people that use outer planets is if you think of the midlife transits of the um, Neptune square and Uranus opposition. Um, that happens sort the of early forties, you know, it's a classic time. There are books, there are movies or whatever. When people go through this often crisis, they tend to lose it a bit. And, you know, th- there is either that Uranian person, that brand new person that comes in, or there's that absolutely falling in love in a Neptunian way with someone, um, that may be wildly inappropriate or, or you think is, you know, this, God or goddess that's going to solve all the problems that you're feeling because you're going through these difficult transits, and you get totally caught up in it. And, and these, you know, that that person really is just representing that Neptune square Neptune or whatever. And often you find as it moves over, you know, the whole thing sort of crumbles. If you like,
0: sure, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense in terms of some of those mm-hmm. transits, especially the Uranus opposition at, happening at midlife, and that as a sort of classic. I don't know thing that that people know about or that's become readily identifiable in our in our culture.
1: Yeah, you know that trying to recapture youth or <laughs> wanting to do something totally different and and this type of thing. I, I mean, you know, the in, uh, all of the planets are interesting with regards to synastry because they they all act in a slightly different way. And I mean, one of the things I wanted to mention actually is I think one of the the misconceptions that often happens w- with Sinistry is how people feel these um synastry aspects. And I think people get confused, you know, if it's, for example, this person's sun is on your Saturn, you experience what's being, you know, set up, stimulated, <laughs> touched in your chart. So if one person's sun is on the other person's Saturn, the person whose sun it is gets a sun experience initially the person whose Saturn is gets the Saturn experience initially. And then obviously you, as we mentioned earlier, you know, you bring in all the aspects that the person has to that sun or to that Saturn. But I think it's an important one that, that people don't often realize is that, um, for example, there's the person with the sun. Maybe they've got good relationships to it. So the initial thing is they experience their sun being set off. That can be quite a pleasant thing if we're comfortable with our sun. You know, they don't immediately experience that idea of a Saturn on it. It's initially quite a good thing. feels nice to them. The Saturn person is probably feeling a little bit more uncomfortable because the other person's sun, shining a big bright light on their area of feeling a little bit inadequate, you know, not sure what to do. So what happens is then the Saturn person reacts in a Saturnian way to that sun. And they might do that by setting up boundaries or they might do that by criticizing or whatever, you know, typical Saturn reactions to it. So that's sort of the second, you know, the second phase is when that person feels that Saturn to it. And then of course, what they often do is they might withdraw feeling that Saturn person's not being very pleasant to them, which they withdraw that Saturn person feels even more vulnerable, tightens the boundaries, et cetera. You know, and that's where you get a build-up of effect over time. But initially, you know, that first feeling is purely just going to be, do I enjoy this planet being aspected in my chart? Is it a a planet that feels comfortable to me? In which case, you know, that can be quite an interesting thing. Whereas, you know, to the other person, if it's a more difficult area of the chart, that feels quite uncomfortable.
0: Okay. So yeah, that's an incredibly important sort of underlying conceptual and technical principle here in interpretations is that um, you said in the book, quote unquote, you experience what is touched in your chart. So when you're comparing two sinistry charts, whatever planet is, is being aspected in your chart, that's going to be primarily initially what you experience in terms of that sinistry, um, aspect is the, the thing that's being aspected in your chart being activated in the same way. I, I guess again, just going back to transits where you'll have a transit going across a planet in your chart and it's, it's that planet in your chart primarily that's, Representing the the initial experience or the foundation of the experience that you are having.
1: Yeah, it's that exact same principle, and, and, and you know, and I think you know we're used to that with transits. So I think if you know you apply some of the same logic to that, um, but of course the difference being is that you know this is a person you can interact with, whereas of course a transit is you know what's going on around you, and you may feel more at um, either in control of that situation or out of control of that situation but with a person you know it's it's an interaction therefore you can sort of alter it and change it over time
0: sure so so and that's the initial experience is the the planet that's being touched in your chart but then you said the second phase is more like the the person reacting in the way symbolized by that
1: yeah so for example you know like the example i get you know initially um, my saturns on your sun for example Initially, you get a sun reaction, which if you're comfortable with your sun, you know, it's sort of, you know, you feel recognized for who you are, classic sun stuff. I'm getting the Saturn reaction. And I'm a little bit wary because your big bright light of your sun is sort of shining directly on my Saturn. So therefore, I might use Saturn defense mechanisms of of withdrawing or criticizing or shutting down a bit. Now, obviously, you're going to feel that. And that's going to feel like it's coming from me, whereas actually, you know, it's a mutual thing because because of that aspect. But so I react in a Saturn way, therefore, that you're then going to have a reaction to that. How do you feel when I react in a Saturn way to you? You know, do you want to try and persuade me otherwise? Do you want to withdraw and go somewhere else? You know, and that's how you start building up that pattern of it.
0: Okay, interesting. So it's the... It's like the placement in each person's charts are getting activated, but it, then it's through those activations that they start acting like or, or acting out or um, taking actions that are in accordance with that, the symbolism of that planet. Mm. And that's what then leads to the interaction between them that will be influenced in, in one way or another.
1: Yeah. And, and we're back to that, you know, earlier conversation about your Saturn's on my moon type thing. You know, th- that's where that argument comes up because. You know, that moon person is feeling that Saturn and their reaction to it is like, well, you're stifling my moon, you know, stop it. (laughs) Whereas to, to the Saturn person, they're seeing perhaps the moon person as, as acting in an unreasonable way or irresponsible way because it's, you know, it's not comfortable to their Saturn. And so that's where you get these arguments because you're actually feeling very different things. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we tend to think, well, if I feel, you know, if I think this relationship's wonderful, and they're acting in a reasonably good way. Then, then surely we're both feeling this, whereas I might be very happy about the relationship and want to take it further, and the other person is is having doubts or or feeling you know they don't want to commit or whatever because of other things in their chart. So you
0: know you've got all these complexities going on. Right, that makes sense. So and in, in terms of um, cross aspects between birth charts and through the synistry. Um, This is, I think, as you said, the most important part of synastry. And some of the things that we're looking at in terms of that in order to filter them are things like, is the aspect very very close or is it a really wide aspect? Does that make a big difference in terms of how close to exact the aspects are versus ones that are further apart?
1: Um, You see, I think it's an interesting one. Um, I tend to, you know, one of the criticisms of psychological astrologers, we tend to use quite wide orbs. Um, and I think it's because we're, we're less worried about predicting something. We're more looking at, you know, fields of influence of things and, you know, how that operates psychologically. Um, I don't think there's a huge difference. I think obviously the tighter it is, we probably feel it more of the time. Um, it's like n- no aspects are felt 24 hours a day, you know. So these aspects in relation sort of come in and come out. So, you know, we're not always feeling it. Sometimes it's more than other. And I think the tighter they are, the probably more often we feel that as, you know, being important. But I would certainly look at, at all of them, if you like, in this type of thing. And then obviously you've got the type of aspect. Um And people often think about, you know, the idea of it being sort of, well, easy aspects are good for relationships and, um, you know, the harder aspects probably difficult. It's not. The fact is that the, it's actually the difficult aspects that often cause us you know, more passion, more interest, etc. cetera, because it's that wanting to work things out within our own charts. And so, you know, it isn't always the easy aspects. We often get those easy aspects with, you know, people we want to hang out with. So, you know, friends, um, stuff like that get the easier aspects often you know it's like we almost wanna make things difficult for ourselves, and so we go for these relationships that are working things out, so you often find those ones that stimulate you know the passion and excitement about something are ones with a bit more tension,
0: right. that old adage that opposites attract sometimes in astrology manifests literally as <laughs> sinistry <laughs> where there's hard aspects creating more tension and excitement and passion versus. If it's just easy aspects, people might not find that to be as quite exciting or as dynamic.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if you think about with our own child as well, you know, I mean, often those square aspects um, are the ones that we, you know, we use for growth, the ones that spur us on to achieve things or whatever. Whereas whilst, you know, a nice trine might be a a talent or whatever we have, they're, they're not necessarily things that push us forward. And so I think you can apply that same type of logic to, you know two relationships that that if there's a you know you need a bit of work to it you need to to um find that reason
0: to be attracted and and you know that there's something involved there. right that, that's really funny then and and how that comes up or how frequently that thing comes up in relationships or where you know you can see people that have a recurrence of certain like tense aspects and and sometimes that can be. Bad, obviously, or could be something that they're having a reoccurring issue that they're working out across multiple relationships. But other times, that can actually be quite constructive, or the the tension that that creates in the relationship is part of what keeps it fresh and keeps it go- going and stops it from getting um, boring in some sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, I think we're sort of brought up to think that we're looking for easy relationships, and we're not necessarily. Um, like I said, we're looking at repeating those patterns and we're looking at, at, you know, trying to understand stuff about ourselves. And so we, we pick people that highlight those issues, um, unconsciously, of course. Um, so, you know, that's what we're working on. And so that's why these, these difficult aspects, you know, because they provide that tension within our own chart. We're looking to work it out and therefore that's far more attractive. As I said it's not necessarily the case with friends where you know we don't necessarily want to be constantly working something out with a friend, we want to be able to, you know, go and see a movie or have a drink and a chat with them and this type of thing. So, you know, something a lot more easygoing or you know, more similarities with us, perhaps feel more comfortable with that.
0: Sure, that makes sense. Um, and let's see other things in terms of, of aspects in the chart. So, we, we've touched on sort of whether it's easier hard aspects, we've touched on uh, whether the aspects are very close or very wide. I mean, one point where that would be relevant in terms of if it's closer or not is that um, at one point in a later chapter, you do talk about looking at uh, transits to the and And if there are placements that are closer to exact by degree between the two charts, then those placements are going to be activated by things like transits more or less simultaneously, which might have some relevance in some way just in terms of the timing of things. If both of you are constantly getting, let's say you have like your Mars is exactly opposed at at 20 degrees. And every time Mars comes up to those degrees to make a hard aspects, it, it hits them both at the same time that might be relevant in terms of just the sequence of things versus if they were a, a little bit further apart. Yes, I mean, that would certainly make a difference, you know, uh, and obviously,
1: you've got those transit like Mars going quite regularly. But of course, if it's something bigger, like a transit of Saturn or whatever, and it's hitting you both at exactly the same time, that can be quite, um well, quite an ordeal, probably, <laughs> you know, you're both working through that, and trying to maintain the relationship when you're both feeling that. Stress on the same part of of the chart, et cetera
0: sure, like a few years ago when when the Uranus Pluto square was exact for like a few years in the cardinal signs uh yeah you,
1: uh,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know, if you had people with
1: those those degrees of cardinal in aspect to one and then being highlighted by it. You know, by those, it's an ongoing drama, is for for everyone, if you like, and it becomes so much more personal. And you know, it's not the case of some one of the people in the relationships going through it. You know, when you both are, then you both might be quite tense, or or you're both having a difficult time at the same time. Then it can be harder to relate, can it?
0: Sure, definitely. And then one of the questions I had is, do you uh, group certain? Planets, especially let's say inner planets, in terms of looking at those, or do you have a, a sequence when you do go into a consultation where you'll sort of um, separate them in terms of seeing, like, let's look at how each person's Mercury is configured to the other person's Mercury in the chart to see how they they communicate, or do you do you group the planets in that way in terms of th- specific things that you're looking for when you're comparing synastry?
1: Um. I'll come back to Mercury because <laughs> that's probably the exception. Sure. Um, no, initially I don't. Um, I mean, I, I think you're, you know, you're probably starting out really, you're just looking for, for all aspects. And in particular, um, I'm looking for, say someone has a T square in their chart, what planets of the other person are touching on that T square, for example, because, you know, something like a T square, um, is going to be a strong part of, Of one person's chart so one you'd expect to see the other person have planets in aspect to it and two you know what are those and how is that going to work and I'd look at that both ways so I'd look at major stelliums aspect patterns this type of thing probably first the mercury one's an an easy um, an interesting one because relationships are about communication really if you want relationships to work it's all about communication and so therefore, uh, you know, it, it's useful to study the mercuries and third houses and et cetera of both people, you know, that you're looking at, because how can they communicate with one another? You know, is there an element in common or or is there, you know, some sort of flow between those mercuries or are they coming from totally different places? You know, is one a, a very airy mercury and one's a very watery one and perhaps one is square to Saturn and the other is trying to Jupiter or whatever, you know, how do they communicate and how can they open up those lines of communication? And I think that's an important one to talk about if you are working with a couple um, or, you know, looking both, child- is how they establish good ways of communicating and where that area of communication may break down because the way they communicate is is different to
0: one another. Sure. Okay. Um, And then It seems like sometimes there were other like classic indicators, like Young had the, the famous statistical test he tried to do where he went into it with the presumption that, uh, there should be in married couples, like a connection between the sun, moon and rising sign or something like that. Um, are there Mm -hmm. other sort of groupings like that in terms of like the sun and moon and the interconnection between those and sinistry being important or, uh, Venus and Mars and, and so on and so forth? Well it's interesting uh,
1: because I think you know we we're, we're back to those early works mentioned sun moon etc you know within the marriage things those first century works etc and then um more recently I, I was talking to someone the other day who's doing going through the uh Gorkaland data of married couples um and looking at, at their synastry and and seeing what aspects show up um But I think a lot depends on what you're actually looking for. Um, And I think if you're looking for something, you know, saying, well, this is something that happens in all married couples or, and that's a very different thing from saying, well, this is something that happens in all successful relationships. Right. Um, That's one thing to look at. It probably, you know, whilst there's an interest in that, I'd say one, even if there is, a you know, a certain statistical, you know, this is slightly, turns up slightly more than average in this. The fact is people have relationships because they are falling in love with someone. And I think for me, my job is to help people with the relationships they're having. It's not necessarily to say, well, you need to look for someone who's got, you know, their moon conjunct your sun or whatever, you know, because they're the one you could... um perhaps get married to or whatever so you know whilst statistically it can be quite interesting i'm more interested in in each individual case that i'm working with you know what is going on here what is the dynamic and how could they possibly work with that dynamic and and you know make that relationship easier for them or learn more about themselves by going through that relationship so i think that's my area of focus rather than necessarily sort of you know, statistically seeing if there there is something, you know, relevant here that that works in a in a number of
0: cases. Sure, that makes sense. And I mean, there's you know many different reasons why different couples get together or, or stay together. And there's going to be some things in the relationship that very are very good where they they match. And there's going to be other things where they don't get along as well. And I guess part of it is identifying those things. I guess I just wondered if sometimes. I don't know if this is something I picked up through my early studies of whatever psychological astrological material I was reading or if it was just something that sort of developed naturally, but just sometimes it it seems like um, by looking at certain combinations of interplanets, it seems like sometimes you can get a sense for the reasons, the areas of the relationship where the people connect well versus the areas where they don't. Like Sometimes, for example, strong Venus and Mars connections indicating a, a strong physical relationship, but that if their Mercuries are not connected very well for some reason, that maybe they have difficulties with communication. Or if their yeah. if their Sun and Moon are connected well, maybe their emotional relationship goes well or there's something about who they are individually as people that really they get along together, but maybe their Venus and Mars are not well configured and therefore the physical side of their relationship doesn't do as well or, or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, um, you know, I would certainly look along those lines. I mean, I think it's also interesting to bring in, um, planets such as Saturn, um, that interest Saturn crops up a lot in long-term relationships. Um, and people, you know, often think of sort of Saturn's synastry to things as being problematic and it does have its problems. But what you rarely get is a long-term relationship that doesn't have Saturn connections because Relationships aren't easy. And in order for a relationship to last, we need to be able to work at it and want to work at it. And what you find with those sat, you know, when our satin is stimulated, it's something that we want to keep going at to try and master, to try and get better at, to try and improve and, and get a, a fix on. And so, you know, you do see those cropping up quite, quite strongly in long-term relationships, even though, you know, there are certain Sort of downsides to to those strong Saturn connections.
0: Sure, yeah, definitely, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And then, um, of course, the outer planets are also very important. Um, they seem a little bit more difficult to to deal with, though. Sometimes, when you have strong outer planet connections through like hard aspects to inner planets, because it seems like there's sometimes like a sort of volatility involved there that can be difficult to to deal with.
1: They are volatile. Um, They're often (laughs) involved in, you know, I'm I'm talking here in difficult aspect, Um, outers to inner, as you mentioned. Uh, Obviously, if you're born similar generation, outers to outers can make conjunctions anyway, most likely. Mm. Um, But um, it's that, yeah, volatile relation and, and sort of quite extreme relationships. So the ones that are, life and death to us you know we're obsessive or jealous or you know it means everything to us with pluto or sparky exciting you know here one moment gone the other with with uranus or or that very um almost sort of romantic courtly love idealization um, with Neptune where you know we place the the, the person on a pedestal As being so, you know, wonderful. And then when we realize that they're just a normal person and they're not a god or a goddess, then, you know, we we feel that terrible betrayal or loss of trust because they've let us down. When of course they haven't, it's just that we projected so much onto them as being so important. So, you know, these are very strong and powerful, um, sort of types of relationship that come in. We can work with them. We, we can manage them, but often they, they require that little bit more. Um, but they are those sort of tempestuous, exciting, you know, <laughs> sort of relationships that you write, write novels about or you see in movies or you, you know, watch on soap operas type, type relationship, the all or nothing type ones. Sure.
0: Yeah. I think that's, it's one of the things about the outer planets. Um, and one of the reasons astrologers. Uh, especially in modern astrology, often default to them because they're, or look at them first because they're so character. There's something unique or something so characteristic about them that often stands out in this really distinctive way. That it's it's often easiest to sort of latch onto and delineate that, um, just because it, it it's often so stark and, and sort of straightforward in, in the way that it manifests, especially in in relationships.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I. Th- I I would say, especially in relationships, you know, they've got that sort of collective weight behind them, you know, that, that whole generational thing. And so, you know, it, it, it's almost like it's not just the person. It's more than that, you know, for the same way that if you in the chart, you know, if you have it in touch with, you know, parental signifiers and often the parents seem like an archetype, you know, that the dad was Neptune or mum was Pluto. And we don't necessarily have a clear picture of who they were as an individual because they get so overwhelmed by the um, you know, the, the, the huge collective nature of the outer planets. So yes, I think in a way they are easier to delineate and, and they stand out as these very strong impulses. And so, yeah, I think they do get probably a particular emphasis in modern astrology because of that, um, I would agree with you. Um, and you know, it is useful to come back to this, you know, the sort of sun moon, um, Venus Mars type things as well. Um, but interestingly, they do show up quite often as well. That often there is a small part of our relationship, even if it is a small part, that links along those certain lines. Um, uh, I mean, again, the person I was talking about the Gorkland data that a, a, a moon Pluto connections, um, was was showing quite highly in in the data that he processed as well. Okay, interesting.
0: Um, And before, because we kind of skipped over it in order to get to the main thing, which is just aspects, is there anything else that's important to mention in terms of um, where what house one person's planets fall in your chart uh, that we didn't mention? Or is that basically it that it's just that um, the planet activates the topics associated with that house wherever it falls in your chart?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the the best way to look at it. Certainly, to start with, I mean, I would concentrate probably on the aspects first. Um, house, you know, overlays are interesting for sort of bringing in detail and, and bringing in, you know, ideas of well, maybe in, in this arena of your life and, and this type of thing. But I think you know that if you're starting out, under sort of understanding synastry and working with it. Go for the aspects first and look at those first and, and get an idea around that. And then use the, you know, the, the house positions, et cetera, and the relationships between the house rulers and this type of thing to broaden out the picture, to add to it and
0: and you know, put a little bit more meat on the bones, if you like. Sure. All right. And let's see, as we're getting towards the end of this, we did mention briefly already transits, but transits are are a major timing technique then, still in sinistry because as we said earlier, especially with really close aspects between the charts, when one person's getting a transit, especially an important transit to one of those placements, that means the other person's going to be getting it either simultaneously or around the same time. And that becomes a useful tool for understanding not just looking at the synastry and the dynamic that's built into the relationship, but how that dynamic is being activated for better or worse at a specific point in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would also bring in, um, progressions or, or solar arc, depending, you know, what you're, you like to use. You can use all of these with them. Um, sinistry is a sort of ever unfolding box, if you like. And so, you know, you can then get to the point of look, doing the sinistry between one person's progress chart and the other person's progress chart, looking at transits to that, looking at solar arcs to it. If you want, <laughs> you know, use what, whatever techniques that you you like using i mean sometimes it just seems to go on forever and it seems too much so i'm quite a fan of keeping things fairly simple to begin with and and looking between the two charts and then perhaps adding in some transits um but you know you can open up and you can use you know whatever whether you use modern techniques whether are traditional techniques you want to use you can still work with those you know the sinistry idea is as you mentioned you know a very old idea anyway and it's just the comparison so whatever techniques you like to use, bring
0: that to it as well. Sure. That makes sense. And um one of the things I loved about later in the book is you mentioned, even though we focused most of this on, on romantic relationships, and that tends to be what synastry is used for the most, it also applies to other types of relationships. Basically, any time you can compare two birth charts, so that can be applied to family members, to friends, to coworkers. One of the ones that was funny though, that made me laugh the, that comes up very frequently for astrologers is, is the charts of astrologers and their clients and like how an astrologer and their client will get along or how a consulting setting will go, go based on the synastry that an astrologer has with their client. Is, is this something that you sort of pay attention to actively or passively or how has this come up for you? Um, actively. I, I do it with every single reading. Um,
1: it's an interesting and I think, it, obviously with each of these sort of examples you're looking for different things so you know you would work with different houses for family members you know you're not necessarily looking at the seventh you're looking at family houses etc um but the the one with the client i found very interesting and i think it's particularly you know when you're working in a psychological context and we spoke about projection earlier one of the classic things of projection is what's called transference where you know people project stuff about their parents or whatever onto someone else and whether you're a counselor working with that person or an astrologer or you know a priest or a doctor or a teacher you will get those projections um put onto you and then we can also project our stuff back onto the you know to the client and that's called countertransference So, you know, you get these ideas playing up. So it's important to look at, you know, your own chart as well as the chart of your client and how do those interact? Where might they push your buttons? You know, where might you push their buttons? You know, what might you project on them, you know, by, you know, when looking at this industry and what might they be projecting on you? And so, you know, looking at these factors, you know, along with other things like a consultation chart or whatever, you know, allows us to have an idea. And I think more importantly, remind us that we are not, you know, some robot <laughs> to go back to, it, you know, sitting there in front of them uh, that can just tell them about, so, you know, we are a, a human being. They are a human being. We are interacting. And so in the same way that we talked about counseling training, and stuff, you know, that idea of understanding what is going on as a dynamic between yourself and the client and understanding what it might bring in you, what it might bring up in them, I think that's a very useful thing to work with to to give us that sense of our own awareness of, of who we are and what we're doing, and and make sure you know we don't go too wrong when we're doing it. If you like, right?
0: Yeah, I, I love that. Although it's it's a little frustrating sometimes because you realize that that sometimes there's just certain I, I don't know there's certain interactions that are going to be more difficult or set up to have. More challenging dynamics from the very start, and that's something that's already sort of there the moment you walk into it, and and sometimes with very brief interactions like that becomes even more obvious than than sometimes with more long term ones, just because it's it's sort of there on display immediately as soon as you the interaction starts taking place.
1: Yeah, but I think sometimes it's useful to be aware of it beforehand, and, and then perhaps prepare for it or try and work out different ways that you might approach it to see if you can make that happen in a in a slightly different way. You know, I mean, we spoke about that sort of self-realization and obviously we're trying to help our clients with that, but it's also an ongoing process for us. So, you know, I think it can be useful. It can be amazing how many times clients bring up problems, you know, or bring problems to the consultation that we're going through in our own personal life or touch on those things. And so, you know, again, it's part of this understanding the process of counseling part. You know, for example, if somebody comes to you and, and they're looking to leave their partner, but your partner's just left you, you know, understanding the nature of that and how you're going to deal with that is a very important part of
0: it. Sure, definitely. Or, or sometimes client, uh, having multiple clients in a short span of time that have the same placement or going through a similar situation in some way. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And and so where where this eventually starts leading though is realizing that everything has a chart and eventually every sinistry can end up applying to any time something has a chart, that you can have some sort of sinistry interaction with that thing and with the chart that it has. And and you even have a section at one point towards the end of the book about The chart of countries and how individuals and their through their sinistry might relate to different countries in different ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, uh, this is fun to play around with. Um, And you know, the idea that obviously, when you can look at two charts here, you know, I mean, you can use any any chart you want. You you know, maybe there's a chart of a group you've joined, um, and you want to compare yourself to that um people do it with their dogs and their cats and their horses and stuff you know there are various ways you can use it but i think the country one's interesting because it brings up a different dynamic in that you know countries have a if you like a psyche or a national psyche if you like the collective you know within them That's obviously formed at various times but they're interesting to look at from a psycho. you know, we often use them on a mundane astrology level, but they're interesting to look at from a psychological level. What does it tell us about this country? How do they, you know, react to things? And then, you know, it's interesting to put our chart um, into it and see. well, how do I relate perhaps to the country i am born or the country I want to emigrate to or, or whatever? And look at that. But of course, it brings up that dynamic that, you know, within a A relationship between me and my boss or, um, you know, me and a friend, we can both change. We can both move. We can, you know, interrelate with a country. Of course, country doesn't care about you. You may care about your country, but you know, it cannot change the way it approaches you. It cannot decide it will talk to you in a different way. It can, you know, you can't go into therapy with your country. Um, although some might hope they could do that. Um, And so I do, I do wish I could do that actually. (laughs) lately.
0: All right, go ahead.
1: But, um, but yeah, but it brings up that dynamic, you know, because we have, you know, we have to accept that, yes, maybe there are difficult things, you know, maybe there are good things between me and this country. Maybe there are uh, things that bother me about it. Well, I can't change that country. So either I have to work, you know, I have to work out what I'm going to do about that. Is it something that's too important that I want to leave or I've got to disown this part of this country or whatever and, or fight against it and try and shift things but it yeah it, it's an interesting thing because it you know it, it does seem far more fated if you like um than perhaps that leeway that we get when working with a a relationship with another person that we can commu- communicate with
0: sure and that actually brings up I, I don't know if it was a specific point that you made or if it was just something that made me think of that but where Sometimes astrologers, there's almost this tendency to be almost initially, at least a little bit more fatalistic about astrology, even though much of our discussion and much of what you said has been much more like process oriented and using this as a tool for growth and, and self reflection and helping a relationship. Um, sometimes astrologers might make or have this predisposition to making snap judgments about sinistry. And there's almost a, a certain amount of. I don't know if it's fatalism, if that's the right way to describe it, but sometimes a tendency towards that amongst astrologers, even if it's not conscious or even if it's not necessarily where they would go with it actively, if they were trying to think about it in the long term. I mean, do you find that that's the case, and is that is that natural? Is that okay? Is that a is that a downside or like a shadow side of sinistry? Or how do you feel about that?
1: Um, I mean, I don't find it fatal. I, I think that you know there is a tendency where we can be flippant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and see, a you know, a strongly difficult aspect, particularly one that's come up before, say, you know, you know, in a friend's relationships prior, um, and perhaps jump to conclusions. And I think, yeah, that's probably something, um, we have to be careful with. I I don't think it's a problem necessarily with client work because I think you're taking them, you know, and you may not have such a depth knowledge of them as you might do with a friend or a, a family member or something. Um, and I think that's where it can be useful of not always looking at the sinistry of, you know, everybody that asks you to. So, you know, not always looking at your friend's sinistry with their new partner, um, but perhaps getting a, a colleague to look at it who doesn't know them as well, et cetera. Um, because I think it, you know, th- there is that tendency, oh, here they go again, or they're, they're following that route again. I've told them about this before. Sometimes it can be useful to work from that outside perspective. And I mean, it's always something I tell my students is, you know, to work with people that you don't know as well. Because I think it, you know, it allows you to be far more flexible, to be far freer, to not be, to not prejudge things or or take, you know, things on board like that, but to, um, you know, to
0: come with a clear mind and just use the astrology. Sure. That makes sense. Um, all right. And, that last point but just before that last one about you know virtually everything having a chart once you start getting into like inceptional charts and electional charts for countries and businesses or organizations like most astrological organizations have a chart realizing that synastry even though it's it's initially somebody might think that it's used for very superficial or almost shallow purposes sometimes in in relationship or just there's a just a very basic level to it that ultimately it becomes the access point for um, realizing that astrology is, is almost infinitely more complicated and, and the number of charts and the way that they're interacting in the world is infinitely more complicated than we even realize. And so, sinistry in that way becomes this really fascinating and still somewhat underexplored part of the, the art of astrology. And yeah, so that's one of the reasons I was excited about your book. And I was really excited and happy we were able to have this conversation today because it's such a broad and and fascinating field. And I'm glad there's people like you that are doing this sort of work in order to develop a better understanding of, of how to apply it and how it works in practice and then conveying and, and passing some of that knowledge on to other people. So thanks a lot for for doing that work.
1: No I appreciate that. You're right it is quite a mind-boggling thing when you start thinking of <laughs> all the charts that even perhaps in one day you're interacting with um you know with with people around you and and things around you and countries and politicians and and all of that type of thing. So yeah it, it is limitless. Um and I think it's very relevant, you know as I said sort of right at the start, you know we are social animals, we're constantly interacting with people. So anything that can can work to, you know, perhaps help us get on with people or or understand our relationships with people better, I think, is, you know, is useful work. We mentioned relationships, of course, family is another one, you know, we have, we choose some relationships, family, um, you know, friends, lovers, etc. And others are are forced upon us, Um, you know, (laughs) there's our family, we've got that. So I think understanding that rather than just always fitting into the patterns that we feel within the family, but having something to look at, well, why does this happen when I'm, you know, when I meet up with my dad or why does this happen between me and my sister? Those type of things, you know, again, it can be very helpful in, in working with those relationships where we have to work with them, whether that's with family or things like a a coworker or a boss where we, you know, we can't easily escape that relationship, if you like.
0: Definitely, and and in that way, astrology becomes a, an incredibly useful tool for um, growth and for self reflection, but also for improving one's relationships just in general and, and learning how to manage them in a way that's more more effective and more successful than we might be without that tool.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, well, thanks a lot for for joining me today for this discussion. Where can people uh, people should, of course, check out your book, and I'll put. Um, Links to the book uh, in the description for this episode, but people can also just do a Google search for the title, which is uh Do You Love Me? The Astrology of Relationships. Uh, where can people find out more information? Do you teach any classes on this or or where can they go? Yeah, um I mean I I as I mentioned I run my own school um which is
1: mercuryinternetschool.com. Um and on there we've got uh some videos uh, as well that people can um can watch um we we have uh, courses that run in this um i have to, available to play on demand the videos that went towards the that came from the classes that went towards writing the book those are available and i probably will do another <laughs> series on sinistry at some point right and i want to admit, uh, um also this october for those of you um interested in the the Sotar conference um in buffalo uh I'm doing a workshop on sinistry there. So um, that might be of interest to, to some of your listeners.
0: Okay, awesome. So the, at the State of the Art Astrology Conference in October, you'll be doing a full workshop on Sinistry. And then this book was largely based on a series of, of workshops, of online workshops that you gave in 2014. And then some of the text is actually the transcripts from that workshop along with some of the audience interactions. So there's probably more that you weren't able to actually include in the book that's included in in that workshop, I assume, right?
1: Absolutely. And I, I've worked I've been working on a whole thing of what we might need to bring into relationships. Um and so sort of relationship theory and, and how that might work. I'll probably be talking about that there. Um so no, it it won't be a rehash of the book,
0: don't worry. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. So yeah, people should check out your school, which is mercuryinternetschoolofastrology.com and your other website, which is psychologicalastrology.com, right?
1: Yep, that's great. And and thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed my time here.
0: Yeah, I'm really happy with how this discussion went. So thank you so much for joining me today and we'll have to do it again sometime.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Chris.
0: All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed it, please be sure to give it a good rating on iTunes, and we will see you next time.